tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. I can't believe that Easter is just two weeks away. It's Sunday, April 9th. We're gonna have two worship services, a 9.30 and an 11, with a giant Easter egg hunt in between. It's an amazing opportunity to open up our doors to the wider community of Fresno Clovis. If you consider Prodigal Church your home church, would you consider volunteering for one of the services and then inviting and attending the second service? It's gonna be an amazing opportunity for all of us to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together. Second thing I want to cue you in on is our kids ministry is booming, okay, and bursting. And so we need more help. So you can sign up to volunteer or to at least ask questions about what does it look like to volunteer on our app or our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com slash volunteer. Living in 18th century England, picture yourself at a card table. There's a group of guys gathered there playing a competitive game of cribbage. And in this group, uh, there is a wealthy, well-known aristocrat, and he's incredibly focused on the game. And he comes to a crisis point because he gets hungry. He, he feels the need to get up and go eat something, but he's torn because the game is very intense. He can't just walk away, but his stomach is rumbling louder and louder by the second. He needs nourishment. He's in a quandary. So he asks the servant to help him. He says to his servant, hey, will you prepare for me a meal? But not just any meal. I want you to prepare something very specific. I want you to get a cold piece of meat and I want you to put it in between two pieces of toast. That way I can eat it without having to use utensils or plates or flatware. If you prepare it that way, my hands won't get so greasy as to inhibit me playing this card game. Do you think you could go do that for me? The servant thought about it for a second. He says, well, sure, and he goes. He got a cold piece of meat, put it in between two pieces of toast, and it satisfied the hunger of this aristocrat. And just like that, the sandwich was invented. It became a real thing that we've now had for over 200 years. Now, how many of you, when you tuned in online today, that you thought you were going to learn about how the sandwich came about, okay? Now you know it and you won't forget it, okay? You're gonna win a trivia game in the future because of today. John Montague was the first person to invent the sandwich. And he was the fourth Earl of a town called Sandwich, and that's where we get the name. So to that end, I'm just going to say, you're welcome, okay? Uh, we remember something like that because that's the power of story. Stories have the power to change how we live, and how we think about everything. And Jesus told stories. And most were in the form of parables. They were not direct. They were indirect. They were not clear. They were unclear. They were not simple. They were confusing. And confounded listeners were perplexed by him but they were intrigued as well. In Matthew 13, Jesus asked a question from his disciples, a question that you might be asking yourself right now. Why doesn't Jesus just tell it like it is? Why isn't Jesus clear? Why does he hide truth in parables rather than just plainly stating it directly? Let's read the response of Jesus found in Matthew 13. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven 
has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Why doesn't Jesus simply tell it like it is? Why isn't he clear? Why doesn't he use acronyms or bullet points? Why does he instead teach to conceal and reveal? This is the genius of Jesus, okay? You see, his parables are based on the heart of the listener. He chooses indirect communication because challenging the dominant understanding of reality, uh, a full direct frontal challenge would have everyone's guard up, okay? That's culture war dialogue. To throw people off while simultaneously attracting the interested, those whose souls are longing for something. Check out this quote by Klein Snodgrass. Great, amazing name. This is from his book, uh, Stories with Intent. He says this, direct communication is important for communicating information, but learning is more than information intake, especially if the learner is someone who thinks they already understand. People entrenched in their current understanding set their defenses against direct communication and end up conforming the message into channels of their current understanding of reality. Indirect communication finds a way in through the back door to confront a person's view of reality. A parable's ultimate aim is to draw in the listener, to awaken insight, stimulate conscious, and move to action. So do the parables of Jesus have one specific meaning, or can they upend us by questioning the way we see the world? The answer is yes. Parables are meant to speak to us and teach us on multiple levels. There isn't only one meaning to the parables of Christ. They're little stories that if you ponder them enough, they embody a totally different way of seeing the world. This morning, we're going to dive into two parables of the kingdom of God found in the same chapter in Matthew chapter 13. The first is about a hidden treasure and the other about a pearl of great price. It says this in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now the parable is titled the parable of the hidden treasure. But it's almost as if it should be called the parable of the lucky and potentially dishonest man, right? This seems a bit sneaky to us. That's not how it would have been heard in the ancient world. See, banks were only for the wealthy. And in those days, banks were not even a very safe place to keep your money. Burying your valuables in the ground sounds strange to us, but it was common practice in the first century. You ever heard of a wealthy old man who didn't trust the banks and so they stuff all their money under their mattress or they hide it in different places throughout their house? Well, that's what the people of the first century did, except for they didn't have mattresses, okay? So they buried it. This was especially true in Palestine because it was a place of frequent warfare. Burying their valuables protected them against any enemies who might come into their homes, raid it, and steal everything. Now, over the years, the ground of Palestine became a veritable treasure ground. 
when the owner of a buried treasure died or was forcefully driven from the land, like during the Babylonian exile, uh, its treasure would be lost forever until someone discovered it. In Qumran, the discovery site of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they also found dozens of treasure maps, lots of them, all leading to buried treasure throughout Jerusalem. Only we don't know how to read them now. They'll say things like, walk 20 paces to the left from Herschel's house, okay? Well, we don't know where Herschel lived. And so in those days, it wasn't uncommon at all for a person who was plowing or digging in a field to accidentally come across buried treasure. So Jesus's parable describes something that was very feasible in the first century. And at first glance, the man in the parable seems to be dishonest, right? Honest behavior would demand that this man tell the owner of the field about the treasure since it was on his property, so it rightfully belonged to him, correct? Yes, in our culture, in our context, but not in ancient Palestine. See, Jewish rabbinic law at the time said this, if a man finds scattered fruit or money, it belongs to the finder. See, right here, we discover it was the Jewish rabbis who first came up with the phrase, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. So the people listening to the parable would not have perceived the man's actions unethical at all. In fact, the man had a right to what he found. If a man came across money or valuables that were obviously lost and whose owner was dead or unknown, the finder had the right to keep what was found, even if it was found on someone else's property. And it's obvious that the, the treasure didn't belong to the man who owned the field, because if it did, he would have dug up the treasure himself before he sold the piece of land. But he didn't know it was there. Apparently, it had belonged to the previous owner, who had probably died in battle or by accident, which prevented him from recovering it. So really, the man who found the treasure was extremely honest. He didn't have to buy the field. He just could have taken the treasure, but he doesn't. He buys the field. In fact, he didn't even use the treasure to provide for him enough money to make the purchase. Instead, he liquidated everything he owned to come up with the money. The man didn't do anything unethical at all, but we need to be careful not to lose sight of the main point of the parable, which is this. It would be easy to say that the moral of the parable is that the kingdom is the treasure. Now, the kingdom is invaluable. The kingdom of God is like treasure, but that's not the teaching of Jesus. And this is what's easily missed. It doesn't say that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It says the kingdom of heaven is like a man found something so valuable that he sold everything he had to get it. And he was so excited about finding the treasure that he was willing to do whatever he had in order to purchase it. What's going on here? A man from Illinois decided to travel to Wisconsin to do duck hunting. Uh, he shot, dropped a bird, but it fell into a farmer's field on the other side of a fence. And as the flatlander climbed over the fence, a dairy farmer drove up on his tractor and said, what's going on? And the hunter said, I shot a duck, I'm retrieving it. The old farmer replied, this is my property, you're not coming over here. Well, this made the hunter a little upset. He says, well, if you don't let me come over the fence, I'll call my Chicago lawyer and I'll sue you. And the farmer smiled and said, apparently you don't know how we do things up here. 
We settle disagreements with the Wisconsin three kick rule. I kick you three times, then you kick me three times. We go back and forth until one of us gives up. This line, I like the challenge because he thought he could easily take this old farmer. So the badger climbed down from his tractor, planted his steel toe boots into the man's shin. Okay, the man fell to his knees. His second kick went directly to his stomach, knocking the wind out of him. And then the farmer landed his third kick right in this man's testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the disoriented man from Illinois slowly gets up and says, okay, old man, now it's my turn. To which the farmer responded, nah, I give up. You can have the duck. Now, in that story, we see the surprise. We see the subversive moment. Okay, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Kevin Spacey was Kaiser Soze. Norman Bates is actually his mother in Psycho. Darth Vader is Luke's father. Prince Hans tried to kill Queen Elsa. These are twists in stories, these moments of shock that we don't forget. The parables often have this shocking moment, this ending that changes everything. But where is the surprise in the parable of the hidden treasure? Where is that ooh moment? Where is the provocation in this kingdom parable? Well, let's continue reading. Uh, again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Here's a man who was a merchant, okay? The Greek word here is emporos. It's where we get the English word emporium, okay? The merchant was a man who would buy things at wholesale and then sell them to retailers, okay? And in the parable, he is looking specifically for beautiful pearls. Now, it was common for entrepreneurs in that day to look for pearls to sell. At the same time, look for quality pearls that they want for themselves to collect. And in those days, people would invest in pearls. Pearls were perceived in the first century really in the same way that we perceive diamonds now, okay? They were the most valuable gem in the world at that time. If you owned a pearl, you owned a fortune. And for good reason, right? Pearl hunting involved immense danger, okay? The fine quality pearls that are obtained from the pearl oyster. And since that oyster thrives at an average depth of 40 feet, a pearl isn't a treasure that you can just stumble upon as you walk along the beach. No, pearls aren't found that way. In biblical times, they were obtained at great cost in human terms. Many people died while pearl hunting. Okay? They didn't have the equipment to breathe underwater that's available today. In those days, your equipment consisted of a rope and a rock. A pearl diver would tie a rope and a large rock to his body, jump over the edge of the boat, allowing the weight of the rock to carry him down to the oyster beds. At the bottom of the sea, he risked danger from sharks, eels, octopus, other creatures that scour the mud below for oysters. And oysters are hard to find, okay? An average of only one oyster in a thousand contain a pearl. All the while, he had to hold his breath and hope that he wouldn't drown. So you can see why pearls were so precious. The Jewish Talmud said that pearls are beyond price. The Egyptians actually worshipped the pearl. 
and the Romans copied that practice. When women wanted to show their wealth, they put pearls in their hair. The ancient historian Pliny the Elder recounts that Cleopatra wagered her lover, Mark Antony, that she could consume 10 million sesterces. Today would be more than a million dollars at one banquet. She could eat a million dollars worth of food. And, and for the dessert course, her servants put before her a single plate with a pool of vinegar on it. Taking one of her matching set of pearl earrings, she put the jewelry into the vinegar, watched it dissolve, then swallowed the residue. She won that wager. Pearls were the highest of all ancient jewels. And pearls is also the only gem that cannot be improved by man. Think about it. All other jewels have to be cut and polished as gemstones, but a pearl is perfect when it's found. It can't be improved by cutting or polishing. In fact, one cut from a human hand and the pearl becomes worthless. Actually, in Greek, the word for pearl here is margarita. Okay, that's not a joke. But it does give new meaning to the phrase pearly gates, right? Amen? Now, even though the pearl has unfathomable value, in this parable, the kingdom of God is not likened to a pearl, but rather is like a merchant while searching for fine pearls, finds a pearl of great value and liquidates everything he has to obtain it. To restrict the analogy of the pearl, eliminates the provocation of the parable, the twist. Unlike the man in the previous parable who presumably could live off the treasure once he had secured it, this dealer though initially a man of some substance, is apparently impoverishing himself to acquire something supremely valuable, which he could only admire and display, but he couldn't live off of. Most of us can't imagine taking this kind of risk. The modern analogy would be to put all of our eggs in one basket, but at least an egg can be eaten for breakfast. There is nothing in the parable that suggests that this one pearl is obtained as an investment. In the gaining, he has not only fulfilled a desire he did not know he had, he also changed his identity. He had been looking for fine pearls, but he only buys one. Finding the pearl of ultimate worth, the merchant now stops being a merchant. He thus redefines himself, and we must see him anew as well. What is he? He is no longer an emporos. What do we make of his example? What does a former merchant do with a pearl? How do we locate ourselves within the parable? In the parable of great price, we learn that the merchant is no longer a merchant. He has opted out of the buying, selling, consuming lifestyle. I found something better than what I was looking for. I'm changed. Thereby, the parable asks, are we willing to step aside from all we have to obtain what we truly want? Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what you cannot keep and gains what you cannot lose. In both of these parables, the merchant and the treasure finder, 
both of the people see something of value that others don't see. But it isn't about relative value, okay? It's all or nothing. There's no halfway to obtain the treasure. There's no trying things out. There's no incremental. There's no testing the waters. There's no, nothing trying to, to hedge our bets or holding something back just in case. No, it's all or nothing. There is no other way to obtain it. It simply costs everything. They're going to have to risk everything. They're going to have to lose everything. They're going to have to sell it all to obtain it. And once they get it, they realize that what they have obtained is much greater than their sacrifice. Though it costs everything, it pays far more than it costs. It doesn't say that they sold everything and in tremendous tears, they were sad. But as soon as they got the money came in, they got their joy back. No, no, it's not a trade. It says, with joy, he liquidated everything. Is something that costs $500 expensive? Well, I don't know. What is it? If I say that it's a pencil, you would say, yes, that's expensive. If I say it's a brand new Ferrari, you would say no. If I said to you, I I'll sell you a brand new Ferrari for $500, do you have money? You might say, I have zero dollars, but I'll be back in an hour and I'll buy it. Isn't that what you would do? Well, is something expensive or not? It depends on what it is. The kingdom life will cost you everything you have. Is it expensive? Not a bit. You give up nothing when you give up everything. It's all or nothing. What will you choose? What will you find? Because Jesus is so much greater than everything you were looking for. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we begin to grasp the brilliance of your teaching, but the holiness and awe and wonder and joy that we discover in following you. God, help us to be more like you, to be blown away by you, to give up everything for you. In Jesus' name, amen.